access to financial markets to people who wouldn't necessarily have it. So for example, if you're a middle-class person in like, I don't know, India, and you want to buy the S&P 500, that's like historically been quite difficult to do. Um, UMA, which is another project based out of New York, just launched uh, like yesterday, and they now have a token that's basically a representation of the S&P 500. Um, And you can just buy that token, um, and then the contract settles at the uh, agreed upon expiration date. My name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, So what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Ariana Simpson, uh, the co-founder of the Autonomous Ventures Fund, correct? Yep, founder. Founder, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we're really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you tweeted about why an un- unpopular opinion about why you think remote work doesn't work, and I kind of want to go into that a little bit. Uh, particularly in this theme of the relationship between stress and creativity because remote work is becoming very popular, it's becoming very hyped, it's like the new thing these days, so um, I want to get a contrary opinion to that and figure out why why you think remote work doesn't really work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me, too. Um, you know, I think it's important first to kind of define terms, right? So obviously Twitter is not exactly the best place for putting out a very nuanced opinion. And to be honest, I really didn't think that my tweet was going to have such a kind of incendiary reaction and, and get so much support from some people and so much, uh, you know, disdain from others. Um, but I would say, you know, when when I tweeted that, what I was really thinking about is, is building a startup. And so obviously I think there's tons of different kinds of companies and uh, many of them can actually work quite well in a way that's distributed. But, um, you know, obviously I'm an early stage investor, so I'm mostly thinking about things in the context of startups and things like that. Um, And so from what I've seen, you know, when you have everybody in the same place, that really does create um, kind of a, a difficult to replicate at a distance Um, energy, enthusiasm, shared purpose. And that often, uh, I think, is, it's kind of an intangible, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, did you put in this number of hours? But when people feel like, A, they can't disappoint their peers, B, you know, everybody's in the office together. And yeah, oftentimes that means working late hours. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you want to have kind of a traditional early stage, high growth, venture backed company, um, you kind of need that. Mm. And so you're saying there's essentially some sort of je ne sais quoi about about this early stage startup that uh, lends itself to being um, co-located, at least in the beginning. But is there a certain stage at which a startup might eventually get to a point where it can go totally remote once it's got that core fund foundation? So again, it kind of depends if, are we talking totally remote? Are we talking sort of remote? Cause what I've seen in practice is that oftentimes if you are not totally remote, but you have some functions, you know, if, 
for example, a lot of uh, companies have customer service teams that are kind of out there. And that, to be honest, can work pretty well because, you know, it's kind of like, did you log in? Did you deal with cases? It's a fairly quantifiable role. Mm. So that can, I think, work pretty well. Um, and so, you know, some companies, Weebly, uh, Airbnb, Coinbase, teams like that have customer support, um, oftentimes like outsourced to an area that's less expensive, whether that's Arizona or somewhere else, um, than San Francisco. And that can obviously make sense. But if you're, if we're talking about kind of most functions, what we see is that if you have some people who are remote and others who are not, the remote people become so miserable because oftentimes they feel really disconnected from what's going on at HQ. Um, they're kind of naturally often passed over for kind of promotion opportunities just because they're not there. And like, I think most people are, you know, myself included, like pretty simplistic. It's like, who is top of mind? You have recency bias, you have all these things, and it's hard for somebody to really shine if they're not visible. So I think that's, that's a big part of it too. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, particularly with what I learned from GitLab interviewing um, Sid, the CEO of GitLab, and uh, I'm going to be interviewing the a vice president at Envision on Tuesday. And both of those teams decided from the very out, outset that they're going to go entirely remote exactly for that reason, that they didn't want part of the team, part of the in crowd, and then the remote team as part of the out crowd. So it definitely matters. And then, so to a company that is choosing that, that fully remote uh, team, do you have any advice for as to how to make that work? Um, I mean, it sounds like some teams have figured out how to do it, you know, better than than I could even suggest. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is that uh, I think oftentimes people point to examples of companies that are successful, including both of those, and say they and so this is for the pro remote work uh, contingent, they say, oh, well, there's counterexamples, like they're pretty successful. So like, clearly it can work. Uh -huh. And I'm not saying it can't work. Yeah. What I'm saying is, I believe, and of course it's very hard to empirically prove or disprove, but I believe they probably would have been bigger and faster growing and more successful if they were all in the same spot. Now, I'm sure that they will probably argue that's not true. Other people will also argue that's not true. I can't in any way, shape or form prove that I'm correct either. So, you know, there's, there's going to be some gray zone there, but I do think that there is, you know, the, the really high performing teams that I've seen that have achieved like massive scale in a short amount of time have really, I think, benefited from having a highly motivated, driven group of people in the same spot mm -hmm. where you're able to just kind of turn things around much more quickly mm -hmm. um, and maintain that sort of high energy culture that, I don't know, I just think is is often difficult to, to kind of sustain um, for extended periods of time if everybody's not kind of in the same spot. Mm. And do you think anything, uh, you know, I don't, particularly enjoy the labels introvert and extrovert, but I do think they too do lend some sort of thing. And, and to my mind, remote work might work better for somebody who is more internally motivated and more comfortable being on their own and doesn't need that kind of external support. And then an extrovert might need that, that kind of um, in-person connection. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I think that's true to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm definitely an extrovert, so I recognize my bias in that sense. However, I think it has more to do with the kind of work that you need to be doing. Mm -hmm. So even for myself, I spend a lot of time reading, writing, thinking, um, as hopefully most investors do, uh, which you then counterbalance with like meeting entrepreneurs, knowing other people in the space and kind of, um, kind of more uh, interactive parts of the job. Um, and so when I need to like sit down and write something, I typically do that on 
often the weekend, but in a segment of time in which I basically isolate myself from everybody else and go away and do that. So Mm. I'm certainly cognizant of the fact that some roles, which lean more heavily towards, uh, you know, writing or coding, things like that do require kind of more alone time. So to be clear, I think, you know, I actually hate, hate with a passion open floor plans. Mm. I worked at Facebook Mm. and I had the fortune, misfortune, question mark, uh, I think misfortune, um, of basically having a desk that was the precise middle of all the walkways on the way to the kitchen and the way to the exit. And basically I could get nothing done because people were coming over and chatting. Hey, Ariana, how's it going? All the time. And you know, they were lovely people and it was delightful, but I literally had to book conference rooms for myself so I could go hide away and do some actual work. So I'm definitely not, you know, a lot of the people who responded to my tweet were like, oh, well, I can't get anything done. Like, you know, and I'm like, no, I totally understand. So I think, you know, the, the right strategy in my mind is probably some combination of the two. So maybe you have part of the office that has actual like rooms, you know, the the old school concept of actual offices, Um, or you have part of the week where people work remotely, and that is kind of segmented off as time that they can spend working on some of those tasks. Um, You know, so I don't think open floor plan, everyone can interrupt everyone all the time is the right strategy. But I also don't think that totally remote is what's going to deliver the kind of most intensive work results. Um, and then the last thing I'll say on this point, and you know, I think a lot of people who responded to my tweet took it, they took it so personally. They, they then started insulting me. Like, <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, clearly you have no friends and no hobbies because you work on the weekend. Cause, and I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's accurate, but yeah. um, it was just, you know, I, I was actually surprised at how personally people took it. And, you know, I think unfortunately, and again, this is going to be very unpopular, so I'm sure I'll get hate mail after this, but <laughs> I think people you know, it's inconvenient to hear that you have to be in the office, right? Like people want, desperately want to say, oh, I have this like remote flexible culture and I can do everything. And I, I think the reality is no, like there are trade-offs. So, you know, I don't think everybody needs to be building a high growth startup to be clear. So like you want to build a lifestyle business, amazing. Remote sounds great. But I think for the kind of expectation that investors have or that, you know, even many founders have about what they want to build in San Francisco or as a high growth uh, tech startup, you know, that's not necessarily the the best way to do it. So I've got a couple of interesting ways we can go. The first thing is I want to bring up something about that open office floor plan. Uh, there is the founders of Basecamp, base who I'm forgetting the names of, they wrote this book that says uh, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And they talked about their uh, rules or regulations for their office, their office in Chicago, and they have something called library rules. So it's where you go in there and you're expected to take on the same rules that you would go into a library. You're basically just quiet the entire time. Uh, and, and maybe they have office rooms where you can go have a conversation, but it needs to be scheduled and like everything's under the clear regulation that, you know, we're, everything's going to be quiet. Uh, so I think that's an interesting way to kind of not necessarily be actual environment of the office, but the the mental uh, and emotional psychic um, uh, um, environment of the office where you set up with the clear understanding of everybody who's working there. Uh, and then the other interesting thing based on what you just said about uh, bringing everybody together in San Francisco brought to mind that a lot of the remote companies now are doing it out of a economic necessity because the they look at 
uh, the 10% of people who can actually move here as opposed to the 90% of people all over the world who have families and all this different stuff who can't move here and also the price differential uh, between bringing people into San Francisco, paying them local salaries when you're uh, competing with Google and other things like that. Um, what do you think about that, that it might be the remote work might not necessarily only be a sense of like it's what's cool right now, but also is economically incentivized? Yeah, I mean, I think that is true to some extent, um, but I think perhaps it's a little overstated in mm. the sense that um, th- people who kind of believe part of that narrative around like, oh, you can hire, there's great people everywhere. Yes, kind of, mm. but not really. And mm. what I mean is, yes, there are brilliant, motivated people who are highly competent all over the world. Awesome. However, I do think that there is a degree of kind of like a specialized experience and knowledge. You want to hire like a senior person who has seen, you know, who who was at Google when Google was early, was at Facebook when Facebook was early. And now you want to bring them in to, you know, lead your team at your new hot startup, like they have a natural advantage over somebody else who hasn't been in that culture before. And so at a certain point, like, yeah, you are going to want to hire people who are not having to learn everything on the job. Mm. And so that base of experienced people is primarily here. Mm. Um, and you know, that it's, it's not rocket science. It's not surprising. And it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that people here are better, but it does mean that they probably have seen more of this because you can go and find the exact person who did this before and go get them from Twitter and bring them to your startup. I mean, of course they're expensive, et cetera, et cetera, but it's possible. Mm. And you know, it's, it's funny because I think, you know, there's all these narratives that are floating around and a lot of them are conflicting, right? So Mm. on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's never been easier to raise money. Like, there's too much money. SoftBank is ramming money. You know, everyone's like, oh, it sounds like we're all drowning in dollars. <laughs> and then, on the other hand, it's like, oh, San Francisco is so fucking expensive. Nobody can afford to live here. Like, we've got to all move. And yeah. so I'm like, okay, well, well, wait a second. Which is it, right? And so yeah. I think there's some truth to both narratives, but... Frankly, like the best companies are still getting funded. Their 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 issue is that they typically can't find product market fit. Not necessarily that capital is not available if they're doing the right things. And so, you know, to some extent, I don't totally buy it buy the story of like, oh, we have to be elsewhere because it's impossible to live here. Um, just because you know, there's plenty of counterexamples that show that that's not. At the minimum, it's not the full story. Mm. Yeah, from that, I understand that essentially the narr- maybe a more uh, nuanced way of stating that narrative would be that uh, if you're if you're a serial founder who's gotten you know proof that they've done this before, or if you've worked at one of these high stage growth areas, then money is not an issue. But if you are not part of that elite, then essentially San Francisco then becomes too expensive. So if you're somebody who didn't go to a top brand school. Uh, doesn't have that network uh, that they got from starting a company or working at another company, and you're trying to start a company, then then San Francisco is is uh, very harsh on you. But then maybe it's a good question why you're actually starting that company as well. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I think I think there will always be money for the best teams, yeah. and you know maybe you start the company somewhere, get it to MVP one, and then you're able to uh, to to you know then move it to San Francisco and build out the actual full team here. Um, but in general, you know, I, I think 
the the thing is investors want to be backing the, the teams who figure it out yeah. right so it's it's not like a charity situation right it's not like oh should you be able to run your lifestyle business here that's irrelevant the market doesn't care yeah. um and so if you can good and if you can't you know tough cookies mm-hmm. yeah and so you were talking about before we started about how uh, for your for your for your job as an investor it doesn't it can be remote and it doesn't necessarily it can't be totally remote because you have to spend most of your time in either San Francisco or New York but uh, it does lend itself more to this and we talked about lifestyle businesses how lifestyle businesses probably lend itself more to to uh, um, to remote work can you expand more on that venture capital side sure um, yeah so I just for for background kind of um, I run autonomous partners which is a fund I started and we focus on um, crypto investments across the board so some of that is in cryptocurrencies tokens coins and other Another part of it is uh, in early stage venture companies in that space. So prior to that, I was also kind of a more generalist seed investor. So um, at this point, I've invested in, I don't know, 60 companies approximately uh, across a number of different kind of areas. Um, So, you know, crypto is an interesting new area in that respect because it requires a lot of time spent like reading and researching, reading white papers, um, stuff like that. And it is, I would say, by nature, a much more distributed ecosystem than what you get in traditional early stage venture. So, you know, that has kind of an asterisk there. Um, So for that, I do have to spend a lot of time like alone, barricaded in in a room, just kind of reading and thinking, because if I don't do that, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like I have the it's hard to find answers to some of these big ex- existential crypto mm. questions. Like, where is value going to accrue? Is it going to be at the platform level? Is it going to be, mm. you know, at the protocol level? So there's there's a number of, of question marks. And yeah. so that requires a lot of kind of deep thinking, which I think is typically, for me at least, works best when I can go off, spend a lot of time reading and thinking alone, and then kind of use other investors, other, you know, engineers in the ecosystem, smart people to basically stress test some of my thinking um, and kind of, you know, riff off each other to kind of hopefully move closer to the truth. Mm. Um, So, you know, my experience is is definitely colored by that. But I think the majority of teams are still here Mm. uh, and in New York to Mm. some extent, but primarily in San Francisco. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, you can invest potentially billions of dollars in literally like a one mile radius in the city of San Francisco. And you could have one of the best performing funds of all time. So, um, you know, that obviously is, is something to consider just because the concentration of people here, uh, who are working on interesting and potentially very successful things is, is very high. Mm. And that brings up an interesting point, because to my mind, crypto essentially means remote, like most of these crypto teams are remote, right? So actually, that's, I think, kind of a misconception, because uh, what what we're seeing is, so obviously, Bitcoin, you know, started out with a number of different contributors working from different places. And a lot of this development was being done kind of on listservs and, and in mm. chat forums and things like that. Um, the issue, though, is that what we're seeing is that even for some of the teams that are building like open protocols, like zero X, for example, um, turns out at the beginning, you kind of have to incubate this protocol. And again, it turns out that like being centralized and then moving towards a more decentralized model actually is becoming kind of the way a lot of teams are, are doing it because 
it seems like it's the best way to do it, or at least, you know, the current best working plan. Mm. So, um, you know, I think in general, that's a trend that is becoming more prevalent where you have, you know, maybe they have one or two team members who are somewhere else who are doing research, but overall, um, there's actually a pretty high concentration of teams, even in crypto, who are based here. Mm. That's really interesting. And so what you're saying is essentially for a lot of these crypto teams there that we've kind of covered it already, but uh, there's a, a theme where they go from centralized idea baking, building and stuff like that. And then it's to a decentralized model of both working and what they're working on is, is decentralized as well. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Very interesting. So now to take it kind of back to the, the overarching theme, I want to get your opinion because I, I, I was interviewing a lot of crypto people on this podcast before the, the, the crash. And now I want to I want to hear from somebody who's been in it, who's been investing in it. What type of stress has been here during and what type of creativity has been during the bear market? So like what have you personally experienced stress or have you seen other companies become stressed from this essentially this wiping out of the market? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of live in a state of permanent light stress with peaks of intense stress, if you will. But I think that's kind of where I, I'm happiest, mm. honestly. Like, I am the worst at relaxing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, being a founder fits my personality very well because, you know, I'm an investor, but I'm also the founder of my fund. Yeah. So it's uh, probably more stressful than many investment roles, I guess you could say. Um, you know, for me, like, the... The thing is, I'm fortunate in the sense that I'm not somebody who ruminates on things that they can't affect. Mm. Um, And, you know, the market conditions are what they are. Um, Fortunately for me, I think some of that stress is is, um, toned down a little bit by the fact that, you know, I've been in this space for about six years. So this is not the first bear market I've seen. Um, And so some of the signals now are just so much more positive Mm. than uh, they were in, in the 2014, 2015 bear market where... Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, this whole thing oh, might have yeah. been wrong. Like, what if I was wrong? Oh, my gosh. You know, um, and I was working at a Bitcoin company, BitGo, at the time. So obviously, I, you, I felt it all very much. Um, but the interesting thing is, like, th- there's incredible teams that are being formed now, really interesting projects being developed. And, um, you know, I think in that sense, of course, if you look at price, it's like, ah, panic attack. But if you look at, you know, what's actually being built, which is obviously, hmm. you know, what happens now from a development perspective is leading mm. like by 12 to 36 months in terms of what will happen later with the price. And so it's a really positive signal. So to me, you know, I've never been more excited about what's happening mm. in the space than now just because of the caliber of people who are working on things. Um, and, you know, at this point in my mind, there's really no well, let's say very little mm. chance that the space is just going to go away. Mm. Um, and so, you know, obviously that that is of some comfort. What are you most excited about right now that's being built that may, other people might not be aware of? Yeah. Um, so I think the decentralized or open finance category is super interesting. And it's one of the first things that's really starting to work. Mm. Um, so I think, for example, one project that's super cool is, is MakerDAO, where yeah. basically they've um, issued like hundreds of millions of dollars at this point of crypto collateralized loans back to people who own, for example, a high amount of mm-hmm. Ether and want to get some stable coin, uh, basically as a loan against their collateral. Um, So something like that is really starting to reach a meaningful scale. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer like, oh, three people are playing this like one crypto game on the EOS blockchain, but it's like, okay, this hundreds of millions of dollars, like this is actually meaningful usage. So I think that whole category, um, the kind of, 
decentralized peer-to-peer trading. Um, There's just a whole category of like financial derivatives and products that are being created and they're eliminating a lot of kind of the risks and um, costs and just issues with the current financial system. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I think it's fascinating and super exciting because it's really helping to open up access to financial markets to people who wouldn't necessarily have it. So for example, Mm -hmm. if you're a middle-class person in like, I don't know, India and you Mm want to buy uh, the S&P 500, that's like historically been quite difficult to do. Um, UMA, which is another project based out of New York, just launched uh, like yesterday, and they now have a token that's basically a representation of oh, the S&P 500. Um, and you can just buy that token, um, and then the contract settles at the uh, agreed upon expiration date. But it's so freaking cool. Like that uh, kind of stuff is not possible, right? Uh-huh. And so... I don't know, things like that, which actually work now, not like promise they'll work in 10 years, um, I think are super exciting. That's really interesting. So basically, right right now, we can tokenize and reflect any any market with a crypto uh, and and these kind of collateralized uh, markets we can we can reflect. Uh, like uh, the Nasdaq, and with a token that anybody in the world can buy, so that it's not limited. But it won't regulation come in and stop that. Well, so um, the regulation is such that um, you know, right now this project in particular uh. cannot sell to. So right now, their first token issued covers the S and P five hundred only. But obviously, you know, they have plans to go from there. But um, the the issue is like it's not supposed to be sold to U S investors. But that's fine because U.S. investors, uh, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's really more about, like, making sure that whatever you're doing is in compliance with local regulation. Um, and so securities laws in the U.S. may or may not apply at all because mm. that may not be the market that you're servicing. Mm. So then talking about in this remote context and just maybe the flow of capital as opposed to work, uh where is the next base for crypto the flow of capital or is it going to be decentralized like is it singapore is it is it new york where where is the is it a does it have to be localized or is it remote well um i think it's going to be more distributed than what we've seen in kind of traditional early stage tech but i don't necessarily think i still think there will be significant hubs Mm. uh you know we're seeing hubs in san francisco in new york in yes places like singapore hong kong um because that's where a lot of just kind of financial stuff is and so it makes sense that the kinds of people who have relevant skill sets and things like that are in large part based in some of those areas um I do think there will be some degree of kind of regulatory arbitrage where if certain jurisdictions become way more friendly or others become very difficult to deal with, then projects will migrate. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, my hope is that the United States will kind of get it together on that front and make sure that they're not creating an environment that is very hostile to development of, you know, the next generation of technology. Um, And so, you know, so far they've been fairly slow to regulate. And, you know, I think people are always, I think, a little too pessimistic about this kind of stuff. So 
even in crypto. I mean, I remember in 2013, when I first got excited about Bitcoin, people were like, oh my God, it's going to be regulated out of existence. The government's going to ban it. It's going to be illegal. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, I mean, I think maybe you're being dramatic. And, you know, it turns out now the SEC has said, yeah, it's not a security. It's like pretty much fine. So you see, like, I think if the market goes in a clear direction, then the regulation also is kind of forced to adapt to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing stuff that's like flagrantly in violation of securities laws, then obviously I'm not suggesting you do that nor condoning that in any way. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the regulation, which in many cases is not clearly against something, it's just kind of gray, um, can actually be made a little bit more clear in a way that actually, you know, makes sure that consumers are being protected, et cetera, et cetera, but is not, you know, stomping out any kind of innovation. That just brought up something almost philosophical to mind, which is that I agree with you that a lot of people are pessimistic, but then there's the opposite side, which is the optimistic, way over optimistic, which we saw at the bull market, which was, you know, oh, I can create this token and I can, you know, get these groups of people to pump it and then dump it and like, nobody's going to come after me. And then all of a sudden the SEC comes after everybody uh, after it's crashed already. So it's like, it's like you're only only on one of these spectrums, like, uh, you know, way over optimistic and ridiculous and way over pessimistic and never going to get an opportunity to join in on any of this thing. And it's almost philosophical in the sense that it's the same approach to truth for most of us, I think, is that uh, we have a uh, we just go on this like this um, pendulum where it's like back and forth, like, oh, you know, but nobody can kind of come into the middle and be irrational and kind of an emotional whatever. Uh, but that's really interesting. That, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of my job is to basically be more emotionally level than most people, which mm. fortunately is not very difficult. Um, I think mm. you're exactly right. Like people get way too excited during the hype cycle and then they get way too pessimistic during mm. the downturn. And so, by the way, this is not at all specific to crypto. Yeah. I mean, we see the same thing in like pretty much any category, dot com, like whatever, you know, it's like, was the internet a bubble? Like there was froth on top for sure that created a bubble, but like the internet was for real, you know, and I think there's, there's very much the same issue happening with crypto now. Um, and so, you know, it's just a matter of saying, okay, well, when everybody's like, oh, I can't, you know, how do I buy a billion dollars of Ripple? Like, and throwing their life savings into yeah. it. And you're like, oh my God, you barely know how to turn on your computer. <laughs> like that's a good sell signal. Right. Yeah. And when everybody's like, oh no, I'm dumping everything. This was all a scam. And I'm like, no, I know like literally hundreds, if not thousands of people who are really smart, who are building really cool stuff in this mm. space. Like, you know, people just way overcorrect in both directions. Mm. That's really interesting. So I want to talk about creativity and what, uh, what type of creativity does crypto enable? Because it seems like it's going to enable some pretty mind-blowing uh, creative pursuits. And I'm not talking about creativity in the sense of artistic creativity, although maybe that will also be changed by crypto. But uh, but just in the pure, like creating something that didn't exist anymore, what are some um, kind of, what is the potential of crypto to change our ability to create? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, I think, um, I think anytime you are able to enable new flows of money and data like that opens a lot of doors and i definitely don't um pretend to be the person who will create that new future i mean i think uh it's important to know what you're good and what you're bad at and for me i i'm good at picking those things once i i'll know it when i see it but i don't you know i don't necessarily i'm not the one who's like dreaming these things up mm -hmm. on my own um but what i think happens is like as you create 
these new platforms where money and value can be transferred a lot more easily than they can now and access to financial services mm-hmm. can be opened up in a whole host of ways that we're just only starting to glimpse. Um, that's really exciting because you can create new markets that could have never existed. Mm-hmm. So for example, now this idea of creating digital collectibles and being able to sell those and having mm-hmm. you know intellectual property owners can create digital scarce representations of whatever kind of the IP is that they have. So things like that um, are, I think, pretty cool. And again, we're just beginning to start Mm -hmm. to to scratch the surface on that. Um, And then I also think, you know, this idea of being able to move to move and control your own data is pretty interesting Mm -hmm. and can enable a lot of, um, you know, new configurations of just how people interact. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you know, I'm not the the one who's going to be dreaming up these exciting new things, but um, I think we'll see a lot more of that in the Mm -hmm. next couple of years. Are you seeing any specific companies or have you invested in any specific companies that are starting to attach a price to data or or some sort of like marker that this data is worth something, creating a market for, for data? Um, I've looked at a number of companies that are doing that. Um, I haven't invested in any yet. Um, I think we're still a little bit early on that front. Um, so I think some of the financial, purely financial applications are going to be successful earlier. Um, whereas there's, there's just a lot of complexity, um, around also like educating consumers and like if the value proposition is like buy or trade or sell this thing because you'll make money, like it's a lot easier to get people on board than it is to, to say, you know, oh, now you can control your data. It's like consumers have shown time and time again, and all the Facebook, you know, drama is a big indicator Mm -hmm. of this, like that they don't necessarily really care. Um, And Mm -hmm. so uh, I I don't put a ton of weight on that just yet because you actually have to have a hook that's like, you're giving them something that they actually want. And then the data piece is kind of like a second, the the privacy and ownership of your data is kind of a secondary thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't so far seen any use case that is, I think compelling enough to get consumers to actually get on board. Yeah, because I mean, some part of consumers are interested in privacy, but they don't represent a large large enough number to kind of make it interesting enough for advertisers to advertise to those to that small amount of people who actually care about privacy. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, developers tend to be much more conscious of these things. And so obviously, if they're building the next generation Mm -hmm. of things with some of those features baked in, that makes sense. But right now we're we're not yet at the point where i think there's been any value proposition that would really appeal to a large enough base of people to really make it exciting mm. so what for you personally what are the most stressful uh aspects of being a uh, crypto investor um I mean, you know, I think so. I I am a the sole founder of my fund, which I think is awesome in some ways and can be stressful in other ways. Um, you know, to be honest, it's interesting because I think uh, there's often a bias against solo founders, and there's obviously more of more kind of examples of this in startups. Mm-hmm. And so um, certain orgs like YC has come out and said that they prefer for, for teams to have multiple founders. And I think they make a good point, which is turns out a startup is a lot of work. And so yep. it's helpful if there's more than one person. Um, but I've seen like so many examples of cases of very successful companies, Dropbox, uh, Instacart, mm-hmm. like where there's clearly one founder who is the kind of dominant original one. And that doesn't mean that the other co-founder isn't a huge contributor, but like 
you know where the buck stops, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. And I have also seen, both in my portfolio and just kind of being in this ecosystem, I think people problems are the number one reason why startups fail, right? I mean, yes, product market fit, but like oftentimes the, the, the internal friction between people, whether that's between co-founders or not, can become a real drag on, on the company. Um, and so, you know, if you're the sole founder, you don't run that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's, there's certainly... Um, some benefit to that. I would also say that if, in looking at some of the um, startup founders, I won't won't comment on myself in that sense. But if you are crazy enough to start something by yourself, mm. um, you're probably going to see that through. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just a level, I think, of of determination, grit, and almost like animalistic hunger mm. that solo founders I have seen often exhibit. Which again isn't to say that founders with co-founders can't also have that, but oftentimes if you are willing to go to those lengths alone, then it it does bode well for the fact that you're just going to keep going. And in many cases, you know, survival is just a matter of being able to stay alive long enough to see the, the upswing. And, Mm. you know, I think that's definitely true in investing too, right? Uh, Particularly crypto right now is still very Mm -hmm. cyclical and market driven. And so Mm. you need to just basically be around to see uh, the next, you know, bull run. Very um, so yeah, I mean, I think obviously occasionally I have days where I'm like, Oh man, I just wish somebody would make a decision <laughs> that wasn't me, you know? So it's like going out for dinner. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. Please just order for me kind of situation. Yeah. Um, but in general, I'd say that, um, you know, that's, that's a pretty positive form of stress mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, oftentimes like internal bickering or things like that can be a real mm-hmm. hindrance to any organization. Um, and so not having that, but still being able to get some of the positives of having partners. You know, mm-hmm. I have a number of thought mm-hmm. partners yeah. who are external to my fund. Yeah. I've really turned into kind of partial co-founders in some sense has been really, really productive. And I think a way that I've found that I'm pretty happy with of kind of making sure that I'm challenging my own thinking or having other people challenge it without necessarily having to have a partner in the fund. I've got two questions. One, how do you know whether something is worth your time doing? Uh, And the second one, how do you know, how have you figured out who is a good advisor or how have you found out who is can be serve that role that you just talked about about that that almost co-founder person mm-hmm. um, well uh, in terms of how how what's worth spending time on um, fortunately I think I'm by nature a pretty decisive person so I don't sit around and kind of like wonder whether I should do a thing too much um, I think in general it's like what captures my interest intellectually so if I'm curious about something if it seems like this is very novel like that's definitely a rabbit hole that I'm going to go down um, I would also say I kind of have an informal um, way of, of picking things in that category where it's just like if five smart people have surfaced something in the last couple of weeks or whether I've, you know, if I've seen it come up a few times on Twitter and I, I haven't really gone deep on it and then I'm like, mm, okay, mm. depending on who is surfacing it, that's also certainly part of it. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's kind of a combination of those things. And in terms of your second question about selecting kind of who my intellectual sparring partners are, um, I tend to, you know, there's there's some people who you like to chat with because they agree with you, and then I also try to find yeah. people who I think are smart who disagree with yeah. me, and um, and just ask them like, what, what do you think about this? And and my position on X is Y. What do you think about that? And you know, I think it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty informative. And I would say one thing I really like about crypto investing is that 
overall, it's a pretty collaborative environment amongst most teams and investors um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's still such a small category that most investors are pretty cognizant of the fact that we kind of either all win or we don't win. Right. So barring like blowing yourself up using massive amounts of leverage or something like that, if you're if you're doing that, um, other than that, like we're we're probably all going to succeed or fail within some range together. And so it becomes people are very willing to help each other out. Um, in a way that, you know, you wouldn't really see in, in let's say, traditional hedge funds where it's things are viewed as much more of a zero-sum game, mm. which they kind of are. Right now, because it's still such a small market, like the market could grow 50x and then we'd all be very happy and there's no need to like undercut each other because right now we're stealing, you know, pennies, but mm. there's the potential to, to make something that's really exciting and delivers out of a lot of value for everybody. Very interesting. That's cool. So what are you most excited about over the next three to six months? Could be personal, could be uh, crypto, could be anything. Um, let's see. Um, well, I'm just excited about a lot of the projects that have been built over the last like year, year and a half to actually start launching, hmm. um, which I think, you know, there was there was all of these massive amounts of, of money raised in 2017, part of 2018, and 2019 and the beginning of 2020 is really when a lot of these things are going to start shipping. And I'm sure there's going to be some massive failures, but I think there's also going to be some pretty exciting stuff. So um, seeing some of that come to fruition, I think, is has me really excited. Um, any, on a personal level, I'm going to be spending some more time in the New York ecosystem, which mm. I'm excited about. Again, kind of that's a mix of, of personal and, and work reasons. But because I've been investing a lot in kind of the open finance, decentralized mm. um, financial ecosystem, um, a lot of those companies are based out of there because there's kind of strong financial DNA mm. In, mm. in New York. Um, so getting time, you know, getting to spend some time with my portfolio out there uh, is definitely something I'm looking forward to. Are there any of those Companies. Man, I'm so bad. I'm like personally and then back to work. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you can see what <laughs> occupies most of my thoughts. Yeah. Are any of those companies that you're excited about, are you need to put any names to them? Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'm an investor in New York in a company called Cadena, which is um, they are, you know, they're, they're building kind of a generalized um, infrastructure uh, blockchain base mm. layer for um, a number of different use cases. So it's not purely financial or anything like that, but really just like an A-plus team who has a lot of experience in um, building systems. Some of the uh, team was actually previously at the SEC too, so they're they're doing things by the book in that regard, so that's exciting. Um, and then, you know, an, another company that I'm an investor in that's out here, but is also in kind of the, the financial infrastructure category um, is Dharma. So mm-hmm. they're also in kind of the credit and lending space. Um, and another one, which is a little bit earlier on, um, is called Marble. And they just launched an interesting thing, which is a price oracle. So one of the big issues in crypto right now is kind of a, uh, a need for on-chain data sources, which provide kind of a source of truth. And that's kind of a sticking point because right now, many of these are centralized um you know, obviously centralization is a, a spectrum. There are degrees of centralization, but many of them are are either centralized or fairly easy to game. Mm-hmm. And so if you're willing to spend some amount of capital attacking them, you can mm-hmm. do that. And so they just launched a new on-chain kind of price oracle uh, called Polaris, which is designed to be both fairly inexpensive to run and also able to uh, be much more expensive to attack. Mm-hmm. seems like there's so much complexity in crypto. Like, just did you come from a finance back- background? 
No, yeah. I have a kind of a weird story in that sense. Oh. Yeah, I, I just got interested in it um, following kind of a trip to Zimbabwe. So I mm. saw the hyperinflation that they'd gone through. Um, and uh, I was there kind of after the worst of it, just as the country was starting to recover from it. But uh, I had a lot of conversations with, with local folks about kind of what they'd gone through. And um, obviously it stuck very much in my mind because it wasn't like... It's one thing to read about this stuff in The Economist, mm-hmm. and then it's different to go yeah. and meet people who are like, oh, my child died because there was no penicillin in the hospitals, and, like, mm-hmm. the entire economy was fucked. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's obviously very impactful. And so um, I came back and started thinking a lot about monetary policy, and so that's why Bitcoin kind of clicked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think uh, th- there is definitely a lot of complexity. For me, I've always been very driven by, like, just kind of my curiosity and, mm-hmm. and intellectual interest. I read basically incessantly. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that has certainly been been helpful. And honestly, you just have to put in the time. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, it's been almost six years. And, like, it's just you, you kind of build this knowledge base and keep adding yep. to it. Um, so I do feel for people who are trying to, like, you know, start from scratch and get into the space because it is very com- complex. Mm-hmm. But I think to some extent it's going to be, you know, in the same way most people don't understand really how the computers work and they just work. Yep. Like, that's, I think, what we're starting mm-hmm. to move towards. And, like, for example, Dharma, I think, has a, a really compelling user experience. You don't have to know basically anything. You just have to own some crypto and you can get, you know, borrow or lend it. And it's one of the first mm. really good user experiences that I've mm. seen in crypto. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so talk about reading. We'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, what are you reading right now? Um, how the internet happened. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I kind of always alternate between fiction and nonfiction. Uh-huh. So I just, uh, or sometimes read a few at the same time. I just finished a gentleman in Moscow, which oh, I also quite, quite enjoyed. Cool. What is, what is the main points from the, uh, how the internet happened? You know, I'm just at the very beginning, okay. so I don't really have a lot of, a uh, lot of insights yet, but okay. it seems pretty compelling. And a lot of people I respect have recommended it. Okay. So I'm excited to dig in more. So we'll get you on next time. Cause I'm starting a, a, a kind of a series within this podcast where I'm going to, uh, ask somebody what they're reading, read it, and then we have a conversation about it. Oh, amazing. Um, That's uh, great. Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, I have lots of tips. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one. And so how can people find you to find out more about what you're doing and kind of uh, what you're up to these days? Twitter is probably the best. Um, It's just my name at Ariana Simpson. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.